coming at you from the decentralized earth. You're listening to Christo on Crypto. And welcome to another episode of Christo on Crypto. Today, the consummate professional that is Charles Hoskinson joins us. In what is a very direct and frank interview, we talk a little bit about Cardano, of course, the three pillars and what it's trying to achieve, some of the difficulties facing Bitcoin and how it's struggling to become what it was intended to be, Ethereum and some of the issues it's facing with scaling, We also talk about the bear market in terms of price, yes, but also in terms of how that's actually been a good thing for Cardano and how developers' salaries have come back to earth. We also talk about being a public figure, receiving death threats and some of the immature accusations made in this crypto space. A very interesting interview and it is a real pleasure to be able to interview people that are so at the top of their game. If you enjoyed this content, then on the podcast app, don't hesitate to leave us a rating. If you can, write us a review, we'd really appreciate it. Also, we've launched our YouTube channel recently, and we're posting every podcast on the channel directly. So if you could like us, and maybe even subscribe, you'll get a notification each time we post a new video. Thank you so much for all your support. It means that we can bring some great guests on and the next few weeks are full of interesting personalities in the blockchain and crypto space. Hoskinson, how are you, sir? Thanks for having me on, and I'm great. And thanks for pronouncing my name correctly. Oh, was it? <laughs> well, how do most people pronounce it? Then? Oh, well, there's so many different ways. Hoskins, Hopkinson, <laughs> Hawkinson. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's been bastardized many ways. I mean, it sounds like an English name, if I'm not mistaken. It is. It is. You know, I, I'm kind of a Euro mud. I have French, German, English, and uh, the English side got the name, but uh, mostly Norwegian and Italian. Oh wow. Okay, so a real mixed bag there, mm-hmm. but. Uh, very European, for sure. Hundred percent. I took the gene test, and uh, there's this. Oh, like is that uh, one, two, three, and me? Oh uh, yeah, twenty-three and me. Oh, t- twenty-three and yeah, me. Yeah, for twenty-three chromosomes. Yeah, yeah. I took the test, and it's like you're hundred percent European. Enjoy your white privilege. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not worried about taking the twenty-three and me though, because a lot of people have concerns because it's uh, Alphabet, the Google company. Oh, I have no privacy. Oh. You know, I, you know, I, I have 105,000 followers on Twitter and people know where I live and what I do and I get recognized at airports. I was, uh, I was down in Melbourne walking through on a layover to Canberra and uh, some guy just saw me walking by and he said, are you Charles Hoskinson? I was like, wow. They recognized me in Australia. <laughs> this is crazy. And the craziest was actually flying into London Heathrow. I, I was going through passport control, and the, yeah. I was walking up to the passport control officer, and the uh, and the officer said, "Welcome to England, Mr. Hoskinson." I was like, "Oh God, they're arresting me at the border. This <laughs> is this over. is over. This game over." So you know, when you lose privacy and you become a public figure, you start caring a lot less about uh, about these things. Mm. I think the big concern with those genetic tests is that they'll share 
your um, your um, uh, genetic test with the insurance companies mm -hmm. for the purposes of policy information. So if you have like a chance of developing Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, you might have to pay a higher insurance premium because that's well, in that's that's just it, right? Yeah. And, they, and who knows what they might do with that data in the future? Although there is some argument to be said, though, if you if you are going to get Parkinson's, would you not rather know about it now? Right, and also it's nice to have genetic information on as many people as possible, and so that you can start talking about gene-driven drugs uh, delivery, where you say, oh, well, you know, we're instead of dosing an average archetypical patient for this particular drug, we can look at your genetic profile and know that people who have your gen genetic makeup probably only need this dosage, or you're going to work better with this drug, or your cancer treatment is going to probably be uh, with this drug more receptive. Uh, so more data is better in that respect. It just has to be handled in a proper way and with privacy. And unfortunately, this is an example of where entrepreneurship is ahead of the law. Mm. And because of that gap, it's, uh, it's creating some issues. And we're going to be dealing with that for a long time. Well, I mean, I suppose if your data was decentralized, I've got to get the crypto oh, joking somehow. If only <laughs> we had some sort of technology that allowed us well, to do that. Yeah, there exactly. you go. Uh, I wonder if we could find that answer. You know, well, when's the ICO? When's the ICO? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, you can fund <laughs> me with Cardano. Yeah, there you go. And uh, we can talk about that. So Cardano, of course, it's your baby. Something a lot of people have very strong views about. But leaving that all aside, I want to hear it from your point of view. What does Cardano mean to you? So Cardano is just a, a continuation of a spectrum that was started 10 years ago. So I look at it as the first third generation cryptocurrency or an, uh, or an aspiring third generation cryptocurrency. You only, get to be, you, know, you only get to call yourself that once you've achieved the mm. roadmap. But Bitcoin was the first generation and what Bitcoin was all about was this concept of can we have decentralized money where people actually take it seriously and, and trade real money for it. And it wasn't really clear back in 2009 or 2010 uh, that that was going to be the case. I mean, we, like these magic tokens that were distributed on the internet somehow, some way, uh, yeah. people are actually going to trade gold and dollars and other things for them. But by 2013, not only did that happen, it happened at a scale of over a billion dollars. And then people said, wow, this thing is real. Uh, we can do a lot of stuff now that this thing exists. But the problem is Bitcoin's blind, deaf, and dumb. And so as a consequence, you kind of need more programmability. It's almost like uh, the web before the browser or before JavaScript. So we kind of have this idea that linking people together and transmitting data between people is a good concept. But if you have to implement all this super complex stuff every single time you want to do a web page, you're not really going to have an accessible model. Then JavaScript comes, the web browser comes, and then suddenly we have Facebook and Google and YouTube and all these great experiences. Mm -hmm. So similarly, uh, you needed programmability with a blockchain. And that's what the second generation was really about. Ethereum said, hey, we got Solidity, we got, uh, we got Serpent, let's throw that shit on a blockchain and uh, let's see what people do with it. And so they created MakerDAO, Gollum, and all these ICOs, and it created an entire industry and it brought hundreds of billions of dollars of capital into the space, it made people a lot of really care about this space. Uh, so then all of a sudden people said, well, hang on a second here. We have three classes of problems that we're now suffering from. One is the scalability issue where as we try to go from thousands to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions to billions, uh, every time you ratchet up your order of magnitude, the systems get slower and they just ultimately break. So the protocols are not fundamentally scalable. We need a different model. Second, 
we have thousands of these protocols and legacy systems floating around and they're not going to go away. No. You know, so it's almost as if saying like, oh, well, you have to have some proprietary standard for every communication channel with a phone. Could you imagine what the world would be like without Wi-Fi? No. If, if Netgear had its own Wi-Fi and Linksys had its own Wi-Fi and you could only connect to Netgear routers or something <laughs> like that. Well, that's where we're at right now. So you need interoperability so that we can actually move value and information between all of these systems. So it's less meaningful about the one blockchain to rule them all and it's more about the internet of blockchains. So what standards do we need to have to move information to value? And finally, with the Bitcoin caches and the Ethereum classics and the Bitcoin cash SVs and so forth, it's very clear that we have a sustainability issue where we're not really clear how we're going to sort out who's paying for stuff and how do we make decisions about where, to, where and when and how to fork these protocols. So I term the collection of solutions for all three of those problems to be a third generation cryptocurrency because I feel you have to solve all three of those problems for you to be able to reach scale and actually have real adoption and millions of users and so forth. And that's what we're trying to do with Cardano. You know, we looked at what Ethereum did well and what they didn't do so well and what Bitcoin did well and so forth. And we kind of launched like a DARPA project. So we started in 2015 and we yeah. had kind of a high risk, high return, aspirational set of goals. And then we spent three and a half years in a lab doing insane amounts of great research. We wrote 40 papers, more than 20 have gone through peer review. And then uh, we said, let's get to the business of building this. So we launched the first version, Byron, in 2017. And mm -hmm. we're now entering the Shell era where we're actually fully decentralizing the system. And very shortly thereafter, we're adding our smart contract model. Uh, so uh, we'll see if uh, we've at least achieved one or two of the, uh, the three of those pillars, interoperability, scalability, and sustainability. And then moving throughout 2019, 2020, uh, we'll try to uh, solve all three of those pillars with the protocols that we've written. So it makes me real passionate. It's been a lot of fun. We've learned a lot. We've done a lot of foundational research, which is actually being reused, even in some cases, by Ethereum itself. Like right. the KEM yeah. work we funded uh, yeah. is now used there. And a lot of our consensus work is highly regarded. Uh, so it's exciting to see the, that we're having a lot of cross-pollination in the industry. And the project's been successful in that respect. You know, I suppose um, one of the, the things people say, though, is, why do you need to start over? Why not just work with what you have? And of course, when you talk about scalability, mm -hmm. um, we, we've faced issues with Bitcoin. And, and we know that Bitcoin's become more scalable in the last few years. Mm -hmm. We know things like fees have been reduced uh, on Bitcoin as a result of the Lightning Network. We know that there's many more developments right. to come. So you talk about the three pillars, interoperability, scalability. Why not just work on Bitcoin or why not work on the Ethereum project? Why create a third layer? Because I've tried to innovate in those platforms. I mean, the, it's no coincidence that all the people who were behind Ethereum were in some way connected to trying to make Bitcoin better. Yeah. But, but, but uh, you know, for example, ColorCoins, MasterCoin, uh, Vitalik was a core developer in these projects. Jeff Wilchie, another one of the founders, was yeah. actually working on MasterCoin. So people first tried to innovate with Bitcoin. The problem with these cultures is that they become victims of their own successes as you start achieving a certain scale and value, you're almost like a cruise ship, can't really change quickly. Mm. So you slow down tremendously and it takes an enormous amount of time to even put in slightly non-controversial things. Mm. They're right now having a big fight in Bitcoin of whether Schnorsig should be added or not. This is a signature from the 1990s. You know, it's been around for this a long time. And yeah. so if it takes, you know, a huge fight to have an argument whether you should adopt a proven piece of cryptography is, that's that 20 years old. The project, well, yes and no, because if your goal is to do things, you can't wait six years for democracy to decide. It's like if there's starving children in the corner, do you want to wait six years to figure out what, <laughs> what nutritious meal to feed them? Or do you go and feed them? So, yeah. you know, the whole point is that if you want to innovate, you have to accept that sometimes you have to start over. So mm -hmm. some cases you can work with 
in the system. For example, as your systems gain more capabilities, it actually invites more innovation in the system. For example, with Ethereum, the ERC-20 token is one of the key drivers of success of that ecosystem. So the very fact that the, the platform had evolved to a point where you could do that without leaving the ecosystem meant that thousands of these little altcoins didn't become their own blockchains. They actually nestled within Ethereum. So that's progress. But then there are big philosophical debates, like whether you do implicit or explicit governance. So blockchain-based governance or off-chain governance. So Vitalik and a lot of the, the hegemony of Ethereum were of the opinion that blockchain-based governance is not, not really tractable. And it's not a focus of theirs. I disagree with them. I think it should be on the chain. They think it should be off the chain. So they're in the implicit group and I'm in the explicit group like Tezos is and uh, other projects along those lines like Dash and so forth. Well, if you don't have that, you know, if you have that big difference of opinion, how do I go and convince uh, the Ethereum ecosystem, no, uh, Vitalik is wrong and Charles Hoskinson is right. I don't exactly have that, that kind of pull. So there's no way we can innovate. So that whole class of technology is effectively dead. So either I create a divergent protocol or I just accept that my ideas are probably not going to work or they'll take years to decades for people to eventually agree. We ran into this with Ethereum Classic. Mm -hmm. We said, let's put a treasury system to Ethereum Classic. ETC Dev didn't want to do it. I wrote a big blog post saying, well, if they go down this road, they're going to run out of money. I had to wait two years for them to run out of money. Now they've run out of money <laughs> and we're revisiting the treasury system. But that yeah. meant for two years, Ethereum Classic lost that innovation and lost that potential competitiveness that we could bring to, uh, to, to bear. So given that no one is the market standard, given that no one's really captured the world and we don't have scale systems with millions to billions of users, I still think we have a legitimate argument for differences of opinion and new systems to mature. And we're seeing that. And uh, what will end up happening is that we'll eventually see consolidation and we'll move beyond the infrastructure phase. We move into the experiential phase where you no longer can go and rebuild all the infrastructure. It's solidified, it's like the internet. Once you've set TCP IP and you've set the web browser and you've set kind of a selection of ways of doing things, even if you don't like the way web certificates work, that's the way they work. Sure, so you have to sure. accept them. And I, I, I think that we're not at the stage in the cryptocurrency space where the infrastructure is set and solid, it's good enough, and sure. that we can actually build experiences. And I know that because whenever we try to build these experiences like decentralized Uber and decentralized Airbnb, we end up regressing back into the centralized world. Mm -hmm. We deploy it on Ethereum, we say, oh, that doesn't really work so well. So let's put a lot of the logic on a server backend. So we've centralized the solution to solve the problems of decentralization. It means the infrastructure is not ready for that use case yet. You need more infrastructure. Sure. Um, I, I mean, I hate to bring this example up, um, and I know you addressed it, but of course the, the Betamax versus VCR argument. Um, the Betamax was the better technology, but VCR took over. But with crypto, it's a little bit different because there are people speculating on the token itself. And of course, there are people using Bitcoin in places like Venezuela and Argentina. Right. So. Do you think, I, I suppose from an infrastructure and a technological point of view, maybe there is still room for some consolidation, we can still develop the protocol that's going to lead us into the future, but from a use case point of view, do you still think that there is still room for that? Right, but think about how easy it is to go from Bitcoin to another cryptocurrency once you're already in the ecosystem. So going from nothing to Bitcoin is a huge leap. You have to learn how to use a wallet. You have to learn how to yeah. deal with private keys. But once you understand that, yeah. then you're like, oh, okay, I kind of get this. And, and so, so you're relying on Bitcoin for users to jump on into the system. And that's perfectly legitimate as an on-ramp. You know, it, 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 Bitcoin's probably going to be here forever. And it's probably going to be one of the reserve currencies, if not the gold standard of our entire space. Uh, and that's fine. 
And it's okay to have high liquidity there, and it's okay to have that be an on-ramp. Mm -hmm. But then there's a question of, well, what do you want to do? And if you want to build decentralized Reddit or you know, a, a platform that prevents you from deplatforming or a replacement for Facebook, Bitcoin's not going to accommodate that. Mm -hmm. It can be a component, but you're going to need other infrastructure. And so the point is that you're going to have a diverse ecosystem of a family of protocols, and Bitcoin's kind of the gateway drug to get you into that ecosystem and understand the principles of it. That you're now in control, that you have to manage cryptographic assets, you have these pieces of software like wallets, you mm -hmm. have to back your keys up. Those are universals regardless of what system you happen to go with. Just like Bitamax and VHS got people used to the idea of home video ownership. And that then all of a sudden primed the markets for other things like Laserdisc and DVDs and, and so forth. And got people used to the idea of consoles and so forth. This idea of, oh, well, there's now a distribution point where we're going to put content. It's no coincidence the same places that rented the VHS tapes yeah. also rented video games, right? Because it's the same distribution model. So that served as the on-ramp for a whole family of consumer technologies that now live in the living room and plug into your television. And Bitcoin can serve as the on-ramp for a whole family of technology that lives in the cryptocurrency space. There's actually a valid argument that perhaps basic attention token and Brave may end up being a better on-ramp than Bitcoin is for well, this Well, of course, space. with the integrations. Yeah, right? they have and millions of users already, you know, and, uh, and, and it's very easy for them to eventually build exchange infrastructure and bats may become more liquid than Bitcoin is, especially if major content providers start using it. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, just like VHS can go away and it was extremely dominant, uh, at some point your generations change and that's an invitation to reevaluate the assumptions of the old model. There, in, in some cases, it's inconceivable, but mm -hmm. somehow it happens. Like with Microsoft and Windows, if you were in the 1990s, if you got money from a VC, the first question they'd ask you before funding you is, what is your Microsoft strategy? Yeah. They would say, like, either are you competing with them, or are you partnering with them? But you, there, Microsoft was always in the conversation because they were just so dominant, they sucked all the wind out of the, uh, out of the air. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then all of a sudden, today, no one asks you what's your Microsoft strategy. Mm -hmm. they're, they're actually surprised if you yeah. say, hey, I'm building on .NET and Windows first. Mm -hmm. They're like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? Why? Because they lost a generation. So, yeah. And it happened very gradually. It was like boiling a frog. Nobody really noticed it. You know, 2004, oh, they're still dominant. Internet Explorer is running everything. Windows is still big. You know, who cares about these cell phones? Mm -hmm. And then now today, it's like they have no market share in the mobile space. And uh, every time they try to penetrate in, they've been brutally humiliated, no matter how many billions they spend. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so generations change things. And, and, it's, and just like Ethereum ate a huge amount of innovation that was happening in Bitcoin and ventures happening in Bitcoin, the next generation is going to eat a lot of Ethereum's launch and Bitcoin's launch. But it doesn't necessarily kill the old incumbents. They're right. still used for Microsoft. They're still around. It's just you grow the pie, and so then there's uh, new stuff. I, I suppose what you're saying is, is Bitcoin should start siloing and concentrating on becoming an on-ramp if, it, if it's to thrive and succeed and bring more people into the ecosystem. And it, and it is. You, you think it shouldn't be used as a, as a means of creating the three pillars. You think it should concentrate on it as an on-ramping currency. I, I think even if you wanted to have those three pillars, you're not going to achieve it with Bitcoin vanilla. It's just impossible to do with the politics of that system. There's all these amazing things like simplicity and side chains and Merkle mountain ranges and all these things <laughs> that just would be great to put in and they would massively enhance the product. And frankly, they're not really controversial from a technological viewpoint mm -hmm. or dramatically change the operation of the system yet they're not in the system. So at the end of the day, it means that if your innovation speed is at that pace, the best you can do is just focus on being a great store of value and focus on being a great on-ramp and be the high liquidity option to get people into the ecosystem and the default standard that everybody seems to be okay with. 
all the regulatory bodies, they're comfortable with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It's not a security, they know how to regulate it, they, they're comfortable with the privacy level of the system, and it would be very easy and non-controversial, for example, Twitter to do a micro-tipping application with Bitcoin. Right. And Jack loves Bitcoin, he puts a lot of money into it. Yes. And, and so it would be very easy to use that as the entry point, but the point is once you have that entry point, now they have that, that ecosystem, and you can then talk around the ecosystem, and then you can say, well, now that you have this, let's add this, and so forth, and then it becomes very easy. Well, that's all very good, but how do you actually convince the governance, or I suppose the, the multifaceted aspects within the governance system of Bitcoin to be aligned to that goal? Is it going to because take too that's long, the or goal, is, is that's someone the, just going to come in? But that's the goal by default. I mean, that's what they're doing by default. They're really not moving in any particular direction. Like, if they wanted to do smart contracts, uh, there's a very reasonable route with the extended UTXO models, first started by Chain, what mm -hmm. we're doing with Plutus and Cardano, mm -hmm. and what's, uh, what's happening with uh, Blockstream and their work, mm -hmm. where they know how to enhance the scripted, scripting capabilities of Bitcoin to actually make it just as useful as Ethereum, and do it in a way that's far more secure. Yet they don't do that. Even though they know how to do it, they have a lot of momentum to do it, they just can't get it in. It's yeah. the same with Snore Sigs, it's the same with a lot of these other things. It just takes a huge amount of effort and time. So by default, a lot of entrepreneurs just look at it and say, well, we know what it is and what it's good for, mm -hmm. so we're going to just treat it like that. Mm -hmm. And then we'll try to innovate around that. Mm -hmm. you know? So for example, Jack might build in lightning support with Twitter. You know, yeah. these types of things. And that's you might fine. get it in the cash app. Yeah, exactly. You know, so so th these are the kinds of things that happen. And, and so, uh, so that's the default. And what's nice is it's such a big ecosystem that it doesn't surprise you. Like if there was momentum for it, it would be a lot of momentum. And we would see that. And it would be telegraphed over <laughs> a multi-year period. And, and it's, it's, it's almost like, uh, like the zombie sloth coming <laughs> after you with the Deadpool comic. You're like, it's going to be a while. You can have a soda. You're going to see the sloth coming. Well, that's uh, something that, that I think will, will tend to fold out and play out over the next few years, yeah. one way or the other. Um, I certainly am not in a position to be qualified to have an opinion on it, <laughs> but it's, it's very interesting to hear what you have to say about that. And I, I suppose that the follow-on question from that is, if, if that's the case with Bitcoin and you had a lot of the devs and a lot of the team move on to Ethereum, and now you're su I suppose you're creating an enhancement to Ethereum somewhat. Well, it's a fundamentally different architecture, and it's a just different way of building a cryptocurrency. Like the the, uh, the ledger and a lot of the design. Do you think scale? I don't think Ethereum under its current model can, but I do think that they have some legitimate ideas like Plasma and Casper that if given some more time in the oven, probably can get them to a reasonable rate of scalability. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily can you scale or not. It's easy to get high TPS. Mm -hmm. It's just what are you giving up when you get there? And the other thing is that scalability is not just about transactions, it's also about storage and it's also about network. Mm -hmm. So as a thought experiment, imagine if you had a system that runs at 500,000 transactions per second, your average mm -hmm. transaction size is one kilobyte. Mm -hmm. Well, how, how much data are you pushing around there? It's like 500 megabytes every second. Yeah. So who can keep up to date with that? Can grandma and her you know, 1.5 megabit DSL <laughs> connect to that? No. no. Uh, can you connect to that on a 4G internet connection? No. So what does it mean? You're centralizing the entire system yeah. around a small group of actors who are actually able to keep in sync with it. Second, how do you store all of that? Eventually you go to petabytes and eventually you go to exabytes and at some point either Google or the NSA has the full copy of the blockchain. You just have to pick which one you want to serve it to you. very true. Right. So, so scalability is not just about can you get performance, it's also about what do you do with all the data and it's mm -hmm. also about how you ship all that data around. So there's a whole class of ideas that are coming 
which allow people to interface with this giant blob of information securely. So these are things like Fly Client or what we've done with NIPA POWs and uh, proof of proof of stake, things like what Sylvia McCauley's proposed out of Algram with uh, Vault. Mm -hmm. uh, and so those protocols are, are slowly working their way into the space. And what it basically means is everybody's a light client by default. Yeah. this giant blob of a system yeah. and then we kind of subscribe to the things we care about and we interface with those things as if we were a full client and we had the entire story so that's kind of like layer one and layer two is saying well how do you throw away stuff after some period of time well, maybe the fact that i had two aces uh, in a poker game i played on ethereum seven years ago yeah. maybe that's no longer relevant maybe we can prune that out of the chain at some point kind of antithetical to the ethos of Bitcoin, which is save everything. Mm -hmm. But this is the whole point of Bitcoin, and they're saying, well, we're a single-purpose system. Mm -hmm. When you go to these multi-purpose systems, you contaminate things. And now... But doesn't that involve an element of centralization as well? Yes and no, because it just depends on the rules of the system. Mm -hmm. So if you, you know these rules are there, for, uh, they can be enforced in a decentralized way. Like, for example, if uh, you, you have this concept of a dead currency. So right. if you issue an ERC-20, Maybe at some point, if the, nobody has transacted for three years and uh, you know the, the currency is uh, just a nuisance, unless somebody pays a high transaction fee to keep it going, it'll just prune that out of the chain and you don't want to have access. So these are examples of things you could dream up. And then that's where controversy comes. And this yeah. is why I think you're not going to have one standard because there's going to be reasonable disagreements between people. Like in Ethereum, we had code as law versus the world computer. Yeah. World computer requires a lot of forks, occasional immutability and so forth. Code is law, it has to look a lot more like Bitcoin, but was just more capabilities. They're just irreconcilable. They can't really live together in the same ledger philosophically. So you have to, at some point, split and allow people to run things in parallel. And, uh, and we'll see that occur. Uh, so then this is what makes this space exciting because you can actually, from a very Darwinian viewpoint, see many different philosophies all in motion at the same time in the same marketplace. Yeah, it's almost as if there's a timeline and it's yeah. the, the, the conclusion isn't guaranteed. Exactly. It's nice to see them competing. A, imagine you have an island and there's nothing on it and it's, yeah. uh, except for all this beautiful lush vegetation. And then you just show up and you dump a bunch of animals on the island. <laughs> you get some snakes Survival and some eagles and some rabbits and you have no idea what type of stable ecology is going to happen. And that's basically what we've done. It's like everybody's dumping wild animals on this crazy island and we're just watching and saying, well, okay, what's going to happen? Are they all going to die out? Uh, you know, are some going to dominate? Is it going to reach some sort of harmony and everything is in balance? And you know, that's, that's the cool part of the job is we get to see that. Absolutely. Now, I suppose, Charles, it's no, it's no uh, secret that you're a, a very technological man and you're very smart and intelligent. And I know that you tend to stay away from questions about price and speculation. But I suppose I don't want to ask a direct question as such, but what effect does speculation have on the rate of technological improvements, particularly for ADA? And we've seen this happen with BTC, mm -hmm. of course, and with ETH. But how does ADA differ from that? Or is it subject to the same whims of the market as yeah, all see, the rest of the currencies? See, I, I don't benefit from the price appreciation of ADA or in, you know, the Bitcoin core devs seldom benefit from the price appreciation of Bitcoin, nor does Vitalik no. mo massively benefit from Ethereum appreciation. Yeah. I mean, if you have a large reserve and you're divesting that reserve after you know, it blows up, then you get a big capital mo. But let's say your reserve is expired then whether the price goes up or down, you actually don't get any upside or downside from that. So you're kind of inoculated from the markets. So, so for a certain respect, it means that you don't follow the markets. In our case with ADA, our ADA is vested, so we couldn't touch it. So I had to watch $3 billion <laughs> worth of ADA turn into 50 or $60 million worth yeah. of ADA, which was just like, okay. 
but you know it's not real money it's it's just you know it's, it's, paper, money. it's paper money so so we just kind of ignored it we didn't think too much about it and we said we know our mission we know our goals let's go and carry that out now what speculation can do for you is bring a lot of money if you're clever uh, towards projects to get them where they need to go but it also invites competition that's unhealthy like for example with EOS where they mm -hmm. raise four billion dollars and they say they have no fiduciary or moral obligations to their investors. They won't even launch their own network. They probably cycled uh, their their own ether back into the crowd still to generate extra tokens. It looks like 90% of tokens are controlled by 1% of the people. Yeah. So how is that decentralized? It never can be because it's a plutocracy. Uh, so when you see these types of projects, they introduce enormous moral hazards into the system. And what does it mean? It means the regulator now has to intervene. Because they, they look at these things and they say, well, we can't allow someone to raise $4 billion and yeah. say they owe you nothing and they can just go spend the money. And, and, and the regulator comes in and intervenes and it defeats the point of doing it in the first place. Right, yeah. And the regulator doesn't discriminate. They don't just say, we're only going to intervene for EOS. Uh, we're going to intervene now for all cryptocurrencies yeah. and apply very unreasonable and draconian standards. For example, yeah. the failure of CoinCheck has really hurt the Japanese market. You know, before CoinCheck got hacked, uh, Japan was actually a great place to run a cryptocurrency venture and you know it was just so easy to get listed and easy to work with people and then CoinCheck gets hacked and now we haven't had a token listed in Japan since November of 2017. Wow. The whole market shut down in that respect. So you know you can come you can be Mr. Rogers and you know be the nicest guy ever super compliant the Ned Flanders of cryptocurrencies <laughs> uh, and there's you still won't get listed yeah. because everything's yeah. just shut down because of this regulatory overreach and so uh, so you know, th there's uh, you just have to tolerate that, and unfortunately, speculation tends to bring a lot of that. The yeah. crypto uh, crypto summer is, is we're still living through the regulatory consequences and the excesses of it during crypto winter, and it slows you down a lot. It, it limits market access. It uh, it also creates it also so. creates unrealistic expectations about compensation. Right. You know, you should not have an engineer come to you and say, "Oh yeah, I'll work for you if you pay me a million dollars a year." Yeah. I'm sorry. I, you know, you know, unless you're your motherfucking Simon Peyton Jones or something, and <laughs> you want to write Haskell too, you know, there's not many people that can command a salary like that. Uh, yeah. You know, but yet. We but it's supply and demand, though, isn't it? Because people are paying that, so they're going to ask for it. They're paying it because they're idiots. Yeah. I don't pay that, and I've built one of the best <laughs> engineering companies. I'd argue the best engineering company space. We have 24 PhDs on staff, and we yeah. we've we have the inventor of the Haskell programming language, Phil yeah. Wadler, with us. So Absolutely. yeah, we we pay well, but. We pay market, and, yeah. uh, and and also you can geographically discriminate. So you can say, look, if it's too expensive to do business in California, I can hire people just as good in Germany, mm -hmm. and just as good in South Korea or somewhere else who have equivalent credentials, equivalent skill sets. Uh, you know, engineers like to believe that oh, they're 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 snowflakes and they're not fungible. But at the end of the day, skills are fungible. And if you you have the patience to wait six months to twelve months for somebody to train into that, you can find qualified, brilliant, capable, and passionate people pretty much anywhere in the world. For example, in Ethiopia, we have a class of 23 women that we're right now training, and we're just about to finish. Uh, 19 are from Ethiopia, four from Uganda. They started with no knowledge of Haskell. And now at the end of the, uh, the training session, they're actually pretty good Haskell developers. Wow. And, and with another, How long did that take? In just about three months. And so then, joking. Yeah, and another six months to a year of advanced training, uh, they'll be on par with a lot of our junior developers. Wow. So we, we took people that knew basically nothing about what we do, and within just three months of focused effort, uh, having Lars Brunias, our director of education, fly down to Ethiopia, we're able to remediate those, those uh, uh, deficiencies and turn them into positive skills. You know what the average salary is for a developer in Ethiopia? It's about $500 to $1,000 a month. Yeah. So a month? A month. 
Wow. Yeah, so it gives you a sense of the delta there. And so I can pay people in the top five to top 1% of the country's salary band still be, uh, and, still be, uh, and still be substantially cheaper than England or California. And I'm changing people's lives. They can take care of their family, their kids. They can live in great places. They have power. They have internet, safe food. I mean, this is, this is but, life changing. But of course, there, there is the initial investment of training them up as well. Yeah, but it's not but really that much. I mean, probably we spent maybe 100000 to put on that class from start to finish. And actually, you can get usually some form of grant subsidy to, uh, to do these things. So, okay, I spent 100000 to train 23 people. I was like, well, I mean, that's the cost of one year's education. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's just, just, it's, it's just you've you got to be clever about these things. So uh, unrealistic wages were just something that blew me away in 2017, especially with exchange listing fees. That was another thing that bought. You have exchange say, oh, to list you, we want $5 million. And they were willing to list anybody, BitConnect and so forth. But, yeah. but one, of the, one of the reasons they were doing that, of course, is because an exchange listing meant a, way, a bigger pump. And uh, it meant of more course. money coming in. So of course. And so people were willing to pay $5 million because yeah. they had so much loose money. So it just created insane expectations on all across the board from professional service costs to engineering costs to infrastructure costs. And I'm extremely glad our industry is now moving beyond that. It's, it's quite nice. And, you know, we're we were always very conservative in the way we did things, which meant that we didn't benefit from the huge surge, but also meant that we didn't pay the price of crypto winter. We're actually quite well insulated. Consensus is firing like 500 people. We're not laying off anybody. You know, we're actually revenue driven and we continue to grow as a company. So uh, it's just a different way of doing things. And I guess I have a different time horizon. Most of the products and projects we work on live in the three to seven year time horizon. Cardano, for example, is five years and the PPP stuff we're doing in Africa is seven years. Wow. Yes, and that's uh, that's the horizon we live on. Well, I mean that segues us on nicely onto what you think of this bear market. I was just going to ask, do you think Cardano is better or worse in this market? Uh, you know, it's, I think we're performing great. You know, uh, we launched at half a billion, and now I think we're like one point two. So, and so that's yeah. that's a year and a half. So that's great performance, more than double the price. The problem is, it went up to insane crazy levels <laughs> and you know and everybody just somehow thought that that was sustainable but it's not you know it's if something goes from $250 to $20,000 in a year with no foundational changes to fundamentals like the only cases you really see those things happen which are sustainable are like when you're a drug company and you get FDA approval if I create a drug that makes your dick bigger and create and cures cancer <laughs> yeah. and the yeah. government says this works you're probably as rich as Pfizer <laughs> Okay, but you know, outside of that, the fundamentals are probably not so dramatically changed in a one-year time horizon. So why the hell did it go up to twenty thousand dollars? I was on Bloomberg uh, in uh, in the UK uh, in twenty seventeen. The, the interview is still up on YouTube, yeah. uh, where I said, "Look, uh, this is a ticking time bomb." These ICOs, and this was back at six hundred dollar yeah. Bitcoin, yeah. and then it just kept going up and up and up. And I told everybody, "It's not sustainable." Uh, beware, this thing is, is going to pop. And it, sure enough, it did pop. doesn't mean that the industry is a scam. It doesn't mean we're bad actors. It just means that we're returning to rational expectations from utterly un irrational expectations. And so, you know, I don't think it's particularly hurt IWHK or Mergo or ability to execute, but there are some members of our community that are pretty sour and it's, uh, it's resulted in some strange and sometimes just downright offensive behavior, like death threats and brutal criticism over Twitter. Uh, you know, everybody seems to think that I'm on this grand vacation running around the world. I went to 30 countries last year, 58 events. Mm -hmm. I, I was working. 
Like running a company on a cell phone while constantly jet lagged and traveling, it was just brutal to go through this entire process. My grandmother died last month. My mother just had surgery a few days ago on her leg. I'm here in Hong Kong. I'm not, I'm not at a funeral, I'm not with my family, I just have to deal with these things as they are. It's not a goddamn vacation. Yeah. Yet there's all these people running around Reddit and Twitter and other places and they say, hey, oh, Charles is just partying. Yeah. And, and partying with our money. Like, I didn't get any money at all from any ADA spec. We've never sold a single unit of ADA. I had three billion in ADA sitting in my company's treasury. I never sold a single unit. It's verifiable, it's right on the blockchain. So where the fuck is investor money going to a vacation? Where did I get it from? It's revenue from my company. And so, so I don't have a right to spend the revenue of my company where I'm delivering a product and a service for that. It's like saying Microsoft can't pay uh, for, for an office space. You know, I get no money from ADA going up or going down and we've sold no ADA. That, that, that's also, it's, it's, it's a misinformation because you, uh, I mean, without, you know, obviously being obvious about it, but that's the exception to the rule. Right. Which is why I suppose you, you're facing this heat. But, I, but it's not the exception. I mean, it's, it's, it's like saying, oh, well, Bitcoin went way up. And, uh, you know, and, and so when Greg Maxwell goes on a vacation, it's because of all those Bitcoin investors. You know, it's, it's, it's a fundamental misunderstanding about how secondary markets work. It's a misunderstanding about uh, the relationship between people who buy a cryptocurrency and the people who work on cryptocurrencies. I am not responsible and Vitalik is not responsible for your returns. Mm -hmm. This is a decentralized ecosystem. There's dozens of companies working on it uh, and there's events beyond our control that uh, move the markets in one direction or another direction. Mm -hmm. And everybody who participates takes a risk, but they just buy with this bizarre expectation that uh, there is some leader who's going to deliver you to the promised land. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only people who promise that are the one coins and the BitConnects and the uh, actual scams yeah. in the ecosystem. And I'm glad that they're starting to go away and I'm glad that people are starting to return to normalcy. Uh, it just takes time to filter. Unfortunately, there's still some people lingering about and God, they're very mean and they're very toxic and uh, it, it slows you down a lot and it hurts you a lot, especially because it's, it's my family reads these things. My mother reads Twitter and she sees all these things. I get asked relentlessly, why are people saying these things about yeah. you? What have you done? Are you, know, yeah. you really the monster they make you out to be or something? And, you know, so I just cut it out, you people. How, how do you deal with that personally? Well, uh, flotation therapy helps, you know, get yourself in some salt water and float for an hour. Is that but, uh, uh, part of the uh, deprivation tank? Yeah, yeah, yeah oh, that, that cool. helps a lot. But, uh, you know, mostly you just focus on the work. You get your nose down and you realize that these people don't matter. What bothers me are when people who are established in the industry actually say things that are just disgusting and despicable. Like, for example, Kyle Samani. Uh, he said uh, that we were funded by the Yakuza. Based out of Austin? Yeah. Yeah, multi-coin capital. Yeah, and he yeah. said we were funded by the Yakuza and we defrauded Japanese investors. Wow. I should sue him for slander. The son of a bitch is a real person and he had, this is an absolutely baseless comment. It's disgusting and he's a real person. He's got a real company. His investors should deeply question why their principals are saying these types of things. I, I mean, where's the fucking scam, you piece of shit? I, that's the stuff that really bothers me because I, I have to deal with these people. I, they're at these types of conferences. I run into them, I sit on panels with them. Who cares if some weirdo in you know, West Virginia says something on Reddit or Twitter? They're, they're nobodies. You know, they're, they're, they don't have context. They're yeah. emotional. They're just outlet. But if you're a businessman, you're paid and you're supposed to be here decades and live with people in your industry, could you imagine if, how Google and Apple would get along? If, if Larry Page started saying that uh, Tim Cook is, is raping children in the basement, 
yeah. and then they have to go to the same conference together, yeah. it yeah. would just be disgusting. And these things don't happen in professional business, but somehow in our industry, people seem to think that that's okay. That's the kind of stuff that deeply bothers me. And I've never been in an industry where this is the standard instead of the exception to the rule. Is this a, is this a consequence of the emotional attachment people have to money and we have this crazy bull run? Now, I think it's a consequence of people who got really lucky getting rich and then yeah. thinking that the wealth justifies them. It's like a bunch of people won the lottery and then they think they're brilliant because they happen to pick some numbers. You're not smart if you get a thousand X return in one year. You're lucky. Yeah. No matter how talented you happen to be, you're just not smart. You know, it's it's luck. And not knowing the difference between luck and, and being actually really good at what you do is so dangerous. And then what happens is because you got all this money, the cult of personality builds around you and then it justifies and reinforces your behavior and then it creates the Craig Wrights and the other people in the space and those people go on and they just say insane things and then people just run along with it. I mean, why, why does he have any attention in the first place? I can't work it out. Uh, I don't know, but he's successful somehow, he's got money somehow and he's created a cult of personality. Nothing he says is accurate. The, the guy, I was in Rwanda with him and, uh, and I saw him, the first thing he said at the speech in Rwanda is, I have more money than your country. Yes, what I kind of a, What kind I of a, I, I walked out, there's actually a video of me walking out after he said it. I mean, what kind of a person, you know, like just, this is how they get up every day and they say to themselves, oh yeah, you know, I'm a good person. Yeah. Let me go tell a bunch of poor Africans how poor they are and how terrible they are. Who, who wakes up and thinks that that's just like proper appropriate behavior? What blows me away though is that while he's clearly disturbed and he's doing this, people follow him and actually yeah. put money into it. Well, his that's the issue, isn't it? The notoriety that they gain from this space, I think, is unjust and it's a shame. So, I suppose uh, we should ask a little bit more about yourself because you've been in this space for eight years. It's no doubt that you're a veteran of the industry. What do you make of the last eight years in crypto? How have we come in a, in a good way? And uh, obviously, we know what the issues are with the industry. But what do we have to look forward to and what's matured? What was, you know, I, I kind of think of the arc of my own life and the first exposure I had to cryptocurrencies was with the, uh, uh, a Bitcoin meetup group I signed up for in 2011. And uh, I signed up, one other person signed up and the other person didn't show up. So yeah. I had a great conversation with myself about my love of Bitcoin. Yeah. And then uh, recently I was in Mongolia and uh, I met a camel herder in Mongolia and that camel herder actually uh, had Bitcoin. So you just think about that arc where you go from no one caring even in developed world nations to a camel herder in Mongolia in the middle of damn nowhere actually has this asset and he doesn't yeah. even have an internet connection. Yeah. That's a really amazing transformation. So and from a certain respect, mission accomplished. We've actually yeah. changed there's the no world. There's no doubt. Yeah. From another perspective, there's just a lot of work to do and it's hard work and it's, it's stressful work and it's controversial work and it's gonna be a big schlog and a big fight. I mean, the real enemies are not each other. We, we complain a lot about EOS and Tezos and Ethereum and we all fight each other, but that's like a bunch of kids squabbling at the kids' table. We got these big banks and these big scary governments and these other things to contend with and- uh, That's the real fight. Th those are the real fights. I mean, there's gonna be a day when Facebook says, hey, you know, now we've launched a token and two billion people have it. And Amazon does the same and Google does the same and Microsoft does the same. What happens when Windows has a cryptocurrency wallet in it? Yeah. Microsoft coins there that can come and that's not going to carry the principles of our space and the values of our space but it will have massive user appeal and distribution and regulation built in and be much more palatable so that's the real fight and that's why we're in places like Africa and places like Vietnam and Mongolia because we think that it's a lot easier to innovate in those markets that people aren't paying attention to and but when you innovate you can cumulatively build up 
millions to billions of users, and then you can come back to the Western world with an army and say, look, if you want to do business with these people, you have to have these people's principles. Yeah. As opposed to going to Goldman Sachs and say, please, please, please change the system for the sake of changing the system. What's the one thing you look forward to for the rest of this year? Oh, well, getting a lot of the Cardano roadmap done and uh, just rolling out decentralization smart contracts. It's long overdue and it's, it's been so exhausting. Uh, I really look forward to seeing that end and that uh, us to move on to more exciting parts of the protocol. Uh, I also really look forward to completing some of the research lines. Like we started this wild journey with proof of stake and yeah. wasn't even clear if proof of stake would actually work or not. And mm -hmm. now we're at a point where not only do we know it works, we have like certain mathematical proof that's been peer reviewed at three major cryptographic conferences, CCS, Crypto and Eurocrypt, that it does work. Right. Uh, so to see provably secure proof of stake actually enter market and be useful and real and a hundred times more decentralized than uh, than Bitcoin and about 50 times more than EOS, that's great. I'll tell you, one of the most meaningful things I saw in that, that thread, one of our community members named Marcus pinged me over Telegram and he said, hey, you know, I, I'm experimenting running Cardano, a full node, on a Rock Pi board. Right. So that's, that's a little board and it only consumes a few watts of power. Yeah. And then we started doing some calculations and we realized that for less than 10 watts of power, you probably can run a full stake pool. Wow. And we plan on having about a thousand stake pools this year uh, running. So it basically means for less than 10 kilowatts of power, you could run the entire Cardano network. That's less than a home. So you're talking about a system like Bitcoin, which uses more energy than Ecuador or, yeah. or Ireland. Uh, and then you compare it with a system that uses basically what several of those room heaters use. Uh, and that system is 100 times more decentralized. It's 30 times faster in terms of throughput and latency is uh, 15 times lower. So it's like objectively better in every category. Yeah. And yet it uses almost no electricity. In fact, the, this particular device Marcus is going to show off at the IOHK Summit yeah. uh, is solar powered. So you know, if we could put a satellite connection to that, that means you could actually use it in the middle of the Namibian desert if you wanted to. That's and Self-sustaining. So, so to be able to, to go from the lab and have this aspiration of science and say, we can invent a reality like that, to watching that along the way turn into reality and then have a community member, not an IOHK person, but just somebody just in the community, some guy, yeah. just come up to you and say, would you like this? We'd say, <laughs> well, shit. That's, uh, that's what makes that really magical. And uh, it, it makes my job very rewarding. We're uh, almost at the end of the interview, and uh, I suppose there's, there's one thing left to ask. We get a new listeners coming in, and uh, they all want to get involved with crypto. So what message do you have for listeners of Christo on crypto? Well, I'd recommend you come to the IOHK Summit. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's April 17th to 18th. It's going to be a lot of fun. My whole company's coming. Yeah. A little bit of history there. Uh, so every year we bring, because we're a distributed company, we operate in 16 countries from Argentina to Japan. Yeah. So you know, the problem with that is, well, you can hire the best and brightest, you get a little siloed because everybody's just kind of working at home and they don't yeah. get to meet their neighbors. So every year we bring everybody in the company together. We go to, to Malta and to Corfu. Last year we did it in Portugal. And so we said, hey, let's bring everybody together in Miami. But instead of having it as a closed event for IOHK employees only, let's open it up to the general public. So it's an opportunity for people to know every person in my company. They're all coming with their families. And we're having just tons of great workshops. Stephen Wolfram is coming from, uh, from oh, Mathematica. Wow. Wolfram Alpha. Yeah, Wolfram Alpha. He'll oh, no be, way. Yeah, he'll be there. And then uh, Rudy Rucker, the author, is coming. And, oh, uh, we, and we also have some bands that are playing. CCR and Steve Miller Band are yeah, playing. So cool. if, you're, if you're a fan of uh, The Joker and... 
Rockin' Me Baby, that's or Fortunate Son, you know, if you like that, they're, they're going to be there. Uh, and it's just going to be a great event in Miami, April 17th, 18th, so highly recommended. Outside of that, I mean, just join a meetup group. There's, they're everywhere, yeah. and Reddit's great. It's a great place to start, and uh, YouTube has a lot of free, great content as well. Charles Hoskinson, it has been nothing else but an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, we look forward to seeing you and speaking with you again soon. Cheers. Thanks Thank very you so much. much. Well, there you have it. That was the Charles Hoskinson episode. I'm sure you enjoyed that as much as I did. It was a real pleasure having him on the show. Someone you can really talk to for hours on end. Uh, and indeed, we had to get hurried along politely by Charles's assistance as uh, we didn't realize the time and we were encroaching on both of our schedules. So just a great asset to have in the community and someone I think that definitely has a polarizing effect within the space. It is a shame to hear about some of the personal attacks that have been laid on him and uh, I always think that that kind of shows the immaturity that still exists within the space. But, uh, I have a suspicion that as the space grows and we, we bring more people into the space, these things will stop. At least I certainly hope so. We're looking forward to having some great guests on the show in the future, and uh, we've got a great lineup for you in the next few weeks. Do stay tuned. We really appreciate your support, and thank you so much again for being a listener of Christo on Crypto.